An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, we're pleased to welcome our special guest, Barry Ritholtz, founder, chairman, and chief investment officer of Ritholtz Wealth Management. If you're at all involved in the capital markets, you know Barry. He hosts Bloomberg's Master of Business podcast, which is downloaded some 10 million times a year. He appears on Bloomberg television. He's a former contributor to CNBC, The Street, and The Washington Post. His blog, The Big Picture, has been providing insightful commentary for nearly 20 years and has been viewed about a quarter of a billion times. Yes, billion with a B. Somehow, Barry remains grounded as an analyst, distinguishing him from the horde of talking heads who use sound bites and gimmicks rather than logic. Welcome, Barry. Thanks for having me, John. So let me ask, what's your origin story? We, we find that interesting people have had interesting lives. How'd you become who you are? How much time do we have? As much as you want, sir. So I'm going to try and make a long and tedious story somewhat short and, and listenable. Um, so when I was a kid, I had, you know, pretty substantial ADHD. And, and I know it's kind of become the diagnosis of, of choice over the past few decades. But back in the day, when you, had, when you were diagnosed, it was like really serious. And I think I recognized that deficit was simultaneously a challenge and a superpower. People misunderstand it. It's not an attention deficit. It's a hyper-focus on things that interest you and, you know, why bother with anything else? And so I use that skill, that power to dive deep into the things that I was intrigued by. When I started writing and posting on the blog, which back in the day was GeoCities, which you would have to write out your text and then do the HTML code yourself. I, you know, went down that rabbit hole and spent a week just reading nothing but code until I was a pretty competent, you know, HTML coder. And and pretty much anything I've I've spent time with, you know, the joke is it it's not the purchase, it's not the object, it's the it's the journey, it's the travel. And if you have that a little dyslexia, a sousant of, of OCD, when you like hyper-focus on these things, it, it, it becomes just all-consuming. So I've done that over my career, whether it was music or, or cars or watches or the markets, you find your way down the rabbit hole and you try and come up with a rational explanation that's not all narrative fallacy and hindsight bias, but why is this happening and, and what does it mean? And so I, uh, undergraduate, uh, started out as applied mathematics and physics, pretty logical by my third year was savvy enough to say, Hey, I'm pretty good at this stuff, but 
those guys are great and I can't compete with those guys. So switched to political science and philosophy, ended up going to law school, loved law school, hated the practice of law. And when there was an opportunity to join a, a buddy's firm, which turned out to be the predecessor firm to E-Trade, uh, I did that, jumped on a trading desk in the mid nineties and the rest, as they say, is history. Let's move forward to today. Um, big picture question. You've spent three decades examining financial markets. Let's take a broad lens. Um, many people just don't think financial markets work well for society today. They exacerbate income inequality, allow businesses to externalize costs, such as greenhouse gas emissions, internalized profits, et cetera. Now, others, of course, point out that the standard of living today, at least until recently, is higher than it's ever been. So something's working right. What's your view of our current system and what it's got right and what it's got wrong? You know, neither of those viewpoints are mutually exclusive. Capitalism is both a boon and a bane. And, and simultaneously, you can have a um, much better standard of living that takes place. You, you have all sorts of positive things that happen. At the same time, uh, capitalism can run amok. So the same system that gives us iPhones also gave us slavery and child labor. And I don't mean child labor 200 years ago. I mean, child labor in the past decade, if you're wearing certain brands of sneakers, well, a 10-year-old might have made it for you. So the, the challenge with, with capitalism is finding where the line is. Where do you put the guardrails? And, and let's talk about a couple of things that you brought up. Um, because we sometimes forget that there is a public-private partnership, that most of the biggest um, inventions and economic um, progresses have government pushing it in, in the beginning. And this is true for, you want to talk about railroads, you want to talk about telegrams, radio, TV, computers, internet. You have all of these amazing technologies that the private sector is not going to take a risk investing in something that you know has an, a return on investment that's 10, 15, 20 years. But the government can do that. I, I laugh every time somebody says, look at how the private sector is exploring space. Yeah, built based on 75 years of, of federal funding and, and investing and, and research. That wasn't made whole cloth. That, that followed, you know, decades and decades of NASA and the European Space Commission and go, go through the list. So we forget that you sometimes need those guardrails. And a perfect example, look at minimum wage. So the minimum wage has gone up over the past couple of years. First, driven by when Jeff Bezos figured out, hey, we have more money and a better tax structure than our competitors. We could raise our minimum wage to $15 and hire up all the good workers. And everybody else has been playing catch up since. So on the one hand, you have that. On the other hand, by any measure, the minimum wage has lagged. It's lagged inflation. It's lagged C-suite um, salaries. It's lagged productivity. It's lagged corporate profits. The government has failed to raise minimum wage over the years. And so when you end up with a labor shortage, um, it's because the Chamber of Commerce and the business lobby has successfully shot themselves in the foot. 
right? They don't understand long-term thinking other than how can we get our legislative package through? And so when you hear, when you hear people complain about why can't I hire anybody? Well, raise your salaries, number one. Number two, uh, you know, the, when I hear a McDonald's franchisees complain that they're going to have to raise the cost of their burgers, hey, we shouldn't be subsidizing the cost of your burgers with, you know, six, seven, eight dollar an hour labor. And of course, it should be more expensive because Medicaid is going to pay for all the diabetes and, and heart attacks that you're going to cause. So let's have this be, you know, let's I was in one of the first things I wrote for Bloomberg was a, a, a furious rant about Walmart and uh, McDonald's uh, profitable public companies outsourcing part of their cost of their labor to the taxpayer. Hey, uh, and how do they do that? They lobby to keep the minimum wage at an abnormally low level. And so ultimately it comes back and bites them in the ass eventually. But in the meantime, it, it's very, very destructive. And so um, we'll talk about this a little later, but I, I think it's important that uh, these third-party externalities, that, that when we allow companies to pollute, when we allow them to outsource to the taxpayer the cost of their labor, that's outrageous. And, and you need a government with a backbone that's willing to stand up and say, I don't mean pro-labor or pro-business. This is right. You can't have the minimum wage frozen at levels that are just far, far below uh, normal. And I'm not saying you raise the minimum wage to $20 nationally, but it can't be at $9 for decades. It's just silly. And ultimately, a lot of what we're dealing now dealing with in retail and in um, uh, food service and hospitality and healthcare it is a result of artificially keeping wages too low for so long. Lots of people figured out this is a terrible gig. And when the CARES Act money was distributed, many of these people started their own businesses. They got educated, they got certified, and Elvis has left the building. And these short-staffed industries, in part, they have themselves to blame. So aside from raising the minimum wage, let me give you, you mentioned ADHD as a superpower. I'm going to temporarily at least give you another one. We are, for the purposes of this podcast, going to make you the super regulator, a czar of the capital markets combining the powers of the Securities Exchange Commission, Commodity Future Trading Commission, Treasury, even Congress, if you want. In other words, you're king of the capital markets. What were the key reforms you'd make? So, so there are four or five things I, I would do. Uh, the first is, and, and this is in no order other than what pops into my head. We, we've been following about senators and Congress critters trading on non-public information they get in the course of their uh, duties. Uh, people were selling stock or shorting stock when they learned about the pandemic that was about to hit. Uh, that's just absolutely egregious and intolerable. So you want to serve as a senator, a governor, a congressman, your assets go into a, a trust, uh, primarily index funds, and you can't touch them until you're no longer in office. The, the fact that these weasels or their spouses are trading on this information, it, it, it's outrageous and egregious, and um, I, I, I'm deeply offended by it. So, so that's one. Number two, 
the corporate minimum tax, the, the fact that Apple and Amazon have paid no taxes whatsoever or very, very little taxes, there's a really, there's a really simple solution. Hey, how much are you telling your shareholders you, uh, you made? Great. We'll use that number. And based on that number, we're going to tax you. And it'll be at 15%, a modest number. And if you look at the history of tax in America, the, the reason taxes feel so high for the average American family is corporations used to shoulder more than half of it. Now corporations are a fraction of that. The, the roads still have to be paved. The military still has to defend the shores. Guess who's paying that? You, me, and, and every other family. So, so that's uh, item number two, a corporate minimum tax that's tied to the corporate profits that are shared with investors. Uh, number three, uh, derivatives, unlike traditional insurance products, deriv derivatives do not uh, historically require a reserve, which is how you can have AIG financial products write, you know, hundreds of, of literally trillions of dollars worth of, of um, policies without a reserve requirement. And so when they collapse, it's incredibly disruptive. It, hey, you could you could do that, but there has to be some sort of reserve set up. And finally, cash is not speech, right? This is one of these nonsensical, corrupt Supreme Court decisions that everybody knows is bullshit, but there's a narrow technical argument that the Supreme Court hangs its hat on. Um, cash is cash, speech is speech. Corporations are not people. So if corporations want to give money to pol politicians in order to undo all those previous things we discussed, that is corruption and you get it tied in a burlap sack with a wildcat thrown in the river. That's what the Romans did. And you were on, they were onto something. So you can't have companies disrupting uh, democracy. Hey, everybody can donate up to X. There can be campaign finance uh, uh, laws. And you can certainly use your influence to bundle those checks. But you as a company can't write millions of dollars in checks so that the average person is paying much more in taxes and not seeing an adequate minimum wage and not having appropriate guidelines. But by the way, I, I grew up a moderate Republican. I haven't changed my views. It's that the whole country has shifted or, or at least the political apparatus has shifted so far to the right that what used to be considered center right, moderate belief suddenly is a radical fringe left. I am a moderate Republican as, an, uh, as I was growing up. In New York, a Jacob Javits Republican. That that entity doesn't exist anymore, and so I'm forced to be an independent. And I'm not one of these people saying, "Oh, it was always better in the past." It was better when people were rational. Hopefully, we will become rational again, even within the world of behavioral finance, where so many of us uh, make irrational decisions. But it's hard to have a democracy when one party has, you know, completely lost their moral bearings. And the other party is just feckless and, you know, ineffectual. So let's talk about politics for a second as it relates to the economy. Um, the U.S. obviously has the largest economy in the world. And one reason that historically has been given is a well-understood and accepted regulatory framework. Now, I've been watching capital markets, I hate to say it, even longer than you have. <laughs> Perhaps not as well, but longer. Um, and in the, the, the regulatory aspects of capital markets used to be above politics. Old time SEC chairs, for instance, whether Democrats like Arthur Levitt or Republicans like Richard Breeden sought consensus among the five commissioners 
And now chairs of both parties routinely have just have split phones along party lines. We're not right. going to get them, so we'll just crab them their throat. What we want. Do you see that this polarization, which mirrors the countries, poses a long-term threat to the preeminence of the U.S. economy? So I'm going to challenge the question a little bit, and because I don't think the country is nearly as polarized as the parties are. Um, if you spend time on Facebook or watch Fox News, well, then, of course, it's rapidly, rapidly polarized. But I think Americans agree on more things than they disagree, uh, although they're certainly with the right algorithm. It's pretty easy to manipulate them to, you know, create an outrage machine and, and make everybody hate each other, um, which is sort of what social media has been doing. Uh, so, so let's hold that aside. By the way, I left out one of my uh, uh, magic czars. I would also institute the fiduciary rule, which is sort of related to this part of the conversation. Um, so the last time we saw the the best interest rule, terrible name um, for for something that isn't in the client's best interest. The best interest is you're obligated to do what's in your client's best interest. That's the fiduciary rule. They they called something that wasn't. Uh, the best interest, and 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 that was on that three-two sort of uh, sort of vote. So so when we look at the polarization, you you have to turn around and say what is what does this mean for what does this mean for the economy? What does this mean for investors? And rather than say buy this, sell that, I, I would rather point to the concept of information hygiene and signal versus noise. And you as a consumer of investments, uh, of, uh, of media and communications that you use to make subsequent investments have to be aware that not all um, communications are created equally. Not every research piece is as good as every other. Not every commentator, columnist, pundit. And, you know, I have a team of about 50 people that I read regularly and rely on. And I know based on their track record that I can trust what they're saying, that their analysis is rational, is fair, is reasonable. I can't say that about the rest of the world. You know, there's very much a fathead long tail resolution, uh, a winner take all sort of thing. Even in the world of, of market commentary, most of what we see, you know, this is Sturgeon's rule. Someone asked him, how come so much of all science fiction, Ted Sturgeon, how come so much of science fiction is junk? And his answer was 90% of everything is crap. So why should SPACs or mutual funds or hedge funds or, or science fiction be any different than anything else? Once you approach the universe from that perspective, you start to see things a little more clearly. And, and you basically say, when I find someone who's really talented, Jesse Eisinger, uh, Dan Gross, Morgan Housel, Jason Zweig, I have a list of like 30, 40 people uh, Michael Hiltzik, and I'm going to leave a bunch of people out, so I'll stop there. But wh whatever they write, I read because I know I'm going to get a thoughtful, well-constructed argument based on facts and uh, well-reasoned. And that's not true for everybody. So if, if you want to get, if you want to be partisan, if you want to vote on party lines, I'm going to point to your social media feed and your information hygiene and say, you're probably doing yourself a disservice as an investor. Um, on a related note, I, I had a con an, not an interview, but you know, when your name's on the door, 
you're having conversations with people, you kind of figure out when, oh, is, is this guy looking for a job? You know, it kind of, it's in the back of your head. And I had an interesting conversation with somebody who, who wasn't vaccinated. And I asked them, what's your definition of investing? And I got like, a, you know, an Investopedia answer. I didn't get a really good answer. And, and I, I responded by saying, investing is a probabilistic exercise using imperfect information to make those probabilistic bets about an unknowable future. So if you're not vaccinated, I get the sense that probability and statistics are not your strong suit because how many people have died from the vaccine? Even if you're a QAnon idiot, whatever numbers you've made are a fraction of the number of people who've died from COVID. And so I'm not telling you that you have to be quadruple boosted and this and that. I'm telling you that you're making a mathematically imprudent bet. There's been 10 and a half billion vaccines given. There's tens of millions of people who have died from COVID. A handful of people had a bad reaction to the vaccine. I can't put you in charge of a client, a portfolio, a trading desk. If you can't do that simple math, maybe this field isn't for you. And if you can earn a living finger painting, I would suggest you explore that. But finance and investing, you, this, you don't have the skill set for this. It seems trivial to go back to the economy after that, but let's do that. <laughs> but it's, by the way, it's, it's the same approach to thinking about things. What are the probabilities? What don't I know? How, how reliable is the information we have? And what might happen in the future? And, and you have to put that mental model, that framework, you can apply to anything. It, to, uh, we underestimate the value of mental models. Like if you have a different strategy for approaching every decision in life, that's a lot of wasted energy. Come up with a model that you can use on everything, um, understanding that they're all imperfect. Hey, the BLS non-farm payroll model, it's not great, but you know what? It's consistent over decades. And so at least you can see the overall trend and work within that. And, and that's the important, uh, to quote George Box, Professor Box, uh, all models are wrong, but some are useful. I find that model for investing very useful uh, when thinking about things that we don't know for sure, things where there's information asymmetry, things where there are probabilities and, and being able to apply that elsewhere, it's been enormously helpful. What's exciting you right now? What are you passionate about? Personally or professionally? Because oh. there's lots of, so, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of intrigued by everything that's going on in the world of venture capital and technology and innovation because the the fascinating thing about about technology and startups and it, it it's a bet on human ingenuity and creativity and you know i was a big fan of paul volcker i actually met him at a, a party uh for at chris whalen's house i want to say it was like 08 maybe it was the 08 election i don't remember and um i told him a joke i cracked him up which was like all right check off that that box but Volcker said there's been no innovation in financial technologies in, since the ATM. And as much as I admire Volcker, I have to point out, and he's been gone for a couple of years already, but I have to point out that he's wrong, right? I, I, pay a, I get a check and I take a picture of it and pay, you know, deposit it on my phone. And 
my brother and sister and I are buying something for mom and we just Venmo each other money and there's no chasing each other. Hey, I need, here's a check for 72. It's incredible. I, I, I'm rebuilding a car in South America. Uh, let me rephrase that. I rebuilt a truck in South America, had it shipped to the US, passed through customs. It's actually arriving today. I paid for it with an app called World Remit, or was it Remitly? It was one of those where I'm paying for this international on my phone. I mean, you couldn't, you know, to, to send money overseas 20 years ago was an ordeal. It was a nightmare. Now it's an app on your phone. Forget Robinhood and free trading and direct indexing, what software can do. The, the world of financial technology. And I, so I'm not talking about biotech. I'm not talking about software as a service or semiconductor. I'm just talking about within my narrow little world of financial technology, uh, things are changing so rapidly. It, it's astonishing. And so, so the idea that um, things are just getting better and better for investors, this, this is the golden age of investing. Spreads are really tight. You could buy the whole market for free in an ETF that has a cost basis of like four bips a year. And I mean, people don't realize, you know, if you could go back in time and bring someone from the 20s or 30s here and say, this is how investors operate. Look, my phone is a supercomputer. And if I want to log on and trade something, well, bang, I could buy something. It costs me nothing. Oh, and by the way, if I want to buy the entire market, I could do so. It'll cost me nothing other than a handful of basis points a year. Uh, that's mind blowing. That's astonishing how much we've uh, progressed and learned. So I'm I'm really enthusiastic about that. So let's finish with a series of quick questions. So what are you reading right now? I am literally on the last chapter of Trillions. I just got back from vacation and I read a couple of books. the The one standout was kind of interesting. Laugh Lines. Uh, Trillions was by Robbins Wiggle, Wigglesworth. It's on the um, ETF and passive index uh, history. Um, I finished Laugh Lines, My Life Helping Funny People Be Funnier by Alan Zweibel. And that book, you know, Zweibel one of these people you don't know his name, um, but he was one of the original people, writers for SNL, one of the original Weekend Update writers. He then went on to co-create It's Gary Shandling's show. And then... Uh, co-created with uh, Billy Crystal, 700 Sundays. Um, so just, you know, he wrote a number of Oscar shows and Emmy shows and just one of those really interesting guys where you're on the beach reading and you just laugh out loud and life is, what's wrong with you? You're like a monkey. What is so funny? So I have to show her these hilarious, filthy jokes between him and Gary Shandling. And uh, that's the last book I finished. Uh, I'm just starting Ready Player Two, and then in because Ready Player One was such a great book, and then in the queue behind that, the new Led Zeppelin biography by Bob Spitz, and everything he writes is kind of amazing. He did the Beatles biography, and he's he's just one of these incredible music journalists. So I normally ask if you could be on vacation right now, where would it be? But you just came back from a vacation. So where did you go and where does the next one going to be? So we went to two places in the Caribbean. We went to Turks and Caicos, and then we went to one of the little K's for a, a day off of Turks and Caicos, which, you know, you look at these places and you say, 
they better hope there's no sea level rise because if water rises a foot, these places in the Caribbean and get wiped out. The, the, as nice as the beaches are in Long Island and they are South shore beaches are very lovely. Um, this is just white sand that doesn't get hot. I mean, it's 82 degrees and the sun is beating down and I, I don't know what, why, I guess it's ref, more reflective that you can walk on the beach, your feet don't burn. And then the water is just the most insane turquoise color. And you could walk 10 feet out just with a mask and you put, stick your head in the water and there's sea life everywhere. There's fish everywhere. There's big turtles. It, it, it's just unbelievably relaxing relative to at least the Northeast. You know, it's just such a different lifestyle. What sort of music do you listen to? I listen to uh, pretty much everything. Um, uh, uh, classic rock for sure. Um, but I'm a, a big fan of, of jazz and reggae and, and punk. I, I'm probably spend the most amount of time listening, at least these days, to the Great American Songbook, um, which is, you know, perf as performed by everybody from uh, Frank Sinatra to Joe Williams to... Ella Fitzgerald and, and Julie London, and you could work your way down all of these um, amazing, amazing songs. What's kind of fascinating is how many modern artists have covered that space. So James Taylor did a, a, an album of classic songs and Paul McCartney did an album and Rod Stewart. And, and amazingly, the person who first introduced me to that was Linda Ronstadt had an album uh, I'm trying to remember the name of it around midnight, maybe, or it was, it was a takeoff on a classic jazz and, and, and she basically, you know, went back in the late eighties and covered all these songs as those writers and those artists were starting to fade, uh, sort of gave them a, a second life. And now, you know, the, the thing that makes great music really great in large part is the melody. And, and I think a lot of modern music has moved away from, from the sort of gorgeous melodies that you used to get in that songbook. So look, I can listen to the clash. I can listen to the Ramones. I, I, you know, love that sort of music when I was um, coming up, but I also, you know, if you could listen to Rogers and Hart or Irving Berlin or Cole Porter or work, work your way down some of, some of the, the, great writers of that era um, of the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, that music is really hard to, hard to match. It's, it's just, it's melody and lyrics and harmony and, and they don't make them that way anymore. Last question. So this is the third superpower we're going to give you. Okay. Um, if you could magically whisper into the ear of everyone in the world, What's the one thing you would tell them? So I spent a lot of time playing with, you talked about information hygiene and the flip side of that is um, Dunning-Kruger. And, and if people, if I can say something to everybody, I would say, what do you know? What don't you know? And what is it that you don't know, but you're also wholly oblivious to? Right. It, it, and, and those are all different sides of the same um, issue, which is 
how confident are, are we in what we think our knowledge base is? How aware are we about what we are, don't know? Like, I know I don't know how to do open heart surgery, and you probably know that also about yourself. That's the easy, you know, the known unknowns is the easy issue. The, the, the Dunning-Kruger application is where you think you're competent at something, where you think, sure, I could do that. And it turns out not only can't you, but you're oblivious to how terrible you are. It, it, to stick with music, you ever hear somebody sing who thinks they can carry a tune and are just tone deaf to the fact that they sound like someone's drowning a cat? Like that, take that moment and extrapolate it to the rest of human everything. And that's our biggest problem is that we simply are blind to our blind spots. We are simply unaware of all our, our deficits, and that's where we get into trouble. Thank you. You've been listening to Outside In with John Lukumnik and our special guest, Barry Ritholtz, who has hopefully cast some illumination on our, each of our blind spots. Barry, thanks so much. Thanks for listening. Outside In is hosted by John Lukumnik and produced by Elizabeth Thompson for Spark Network. You can find our show on Apple Podcasts, where we'd love it if you leave us a review, as well as on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon, and wherever else you get your favorite shows. To get more information about our show and to stay in the know about future episodes, sign up for our newsletter on sparknetwork.com.